Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. <laughs> and so, with our saga of Rudolph Valentino, we are starting part two. The end of part one, he had arrived in New York City on the ship on December 23rd, 1913. Stepped ashore and went right out and had a meal at Maxim's of lobster and champagne. That's our Rudy. And ordered a suite at the hotel. Exactly. He got a bedroom, uh, a sitting room, and his own private bathroom. Figuring, I've got a $4,000. And he said, it felt like it would, you know, it was uh, all the money in the world that he could just keep spending. So he went out into New York City uh, with not very much English at the time, which is really amazing. So he tended to hang out a lot with people who were from Europe who spoke, because he spoke French and Italian fluently. And he ended up getting together with these three men who were uh, nobility, who were counts from Europe. Yeah, exactly. He partied hardy. They went dancing, did a lot of dancing, uh, drank, uh, hung out with ladies. Who knows what all he was doing, but he was having a great partying time. And he didn't bother to look for a job, didn't even really think about it. He just had a great time. And his goal was he wanted to ascend the ranks. He wanted to be wealthy. He wanted to be elegant. He wanted to just live a, a great adventurous life. And he was not somebody who was at this time thinking about working or uh, what do I, what, how do I want to express myself artistically. Didn't probably even see himself as any kind of artist at all at that point, uh, even though he did have a certificate from the, I'm sorry, Agricultural College, which also encompassed, I guess what they call it, some sort of garden architecture, where basically designing Italian gardens in the Italian style. He did have that under his belt, but didn't care, having a great time, dancing, going out, and he also had printed before he left Italy these cards, and you can see reproductions of them online. Marchesa Rudolfo di Valentini, <laughs> and with a with a with a crest or a crown at the top, and basically passed himself off kind of as a nobleman as well. <laughs> Who knew, right? He had plenty of money at the time. So then, what happens is, uh, you know, he's making all these highfalutin friends, and eventually he meets a bunch of Americans as well who are sort of upper crust of social class. And then he runs out of money. He just keeps going until he runs out of money. After three months, his well ran dry, and the hotel ended up keeping his clothes, which is what they would do if you got behind on your rent and you didn't pay it, and they kicked you out, they kept your stuff, basically as collateral for you to come back and pay them. Otherwise, you had no incentive whatsoever to go back and pay them. So he ended up having to um, sleep rough. He slept on park benches in the rain if he had to. He washed in fire hydrants. He ended up going into uh, the Waldorf, sneaking in the Waldorf and stealing stationery so that he could write to his mother on the Waldorf Hotel stationery so she wouldn't have any idea how rough things were going for him and that, that he was, Aww. I know. <laughs> God, what a impractical guy. <laughs> I know. But, you know, he wasn't going to ask her for more money. He wasn't going to tell her, oh, I got here in three months. I spent all the money you gave me. Because $4,000 in those days was a nice chunk of change. I mean, he could have probably have lived for three years on that if he just lived very modestly and, and had plenty of time to get a job and get established. 
But no, that's not... Which, which is good for us, because I, he never would have made it to Hollywood and become an actor if he had gone that route. So that that's all to the good, actually, in the end. But he did suffer a lot. It must have been very hard. And then, of course, his high society friends just ghosted him. I mean, they didn't want anything to do with him if he wasn't in their class. They weren't going to help him, which is really sad. Yeah, so a bummer. Yeah, so it's really pretty much got abandoned. And so, you know, he ended up, like, also doing whatever job he could because once he needed to, he clicked in and he washed cars and he bussed tables and he took out garbage and he washed dishes and, and he tried to farm himself out for gardening and that kind of stuff. And eventually he did get a job as a gardener, uh, like building this Italian, laying out and designing an Italian garden and basically he did all the grunt work too. He was like a one-man shop there for this really rich guy but that didn't last very long. Who knows exactly what happened. Some people say the man's wife came back and changed her mind and didn't want a garden. She wanted a tennis court instead and so he was let go. Some people say that there was a dispute over money and which is something that always was an issue for um, he had an issue around spending money and also being pretty generous with his friends. But he also was very touchy about his due and what he had the right to be paid. And um, so when he was in a position where he felt that he was really giving value for money, he expected to be paid in that value. So if somebody was trying to, you know, going, oh, well, this is an immigrant guy, I can short shrift him, that could have caused a, a rift too. But whatever the case, that one didn't last long. So eventually he would get a little money, He'd get a room for, or get a bed for a night, and then he would sleep rough, and it was just kind of all over the place for a while. And then, so December 23rd, as we said, 1913, he arrived. In July 28, 1914, World War I began. Within seven months of his arrival, World War I began. Now, this is a very interesting situation because Britain was in the war, right, against Germany, Austro-Hungarian Empire. Italy, which we always think of as being on the other side because in World War II, they were with the Axis powers. In World War I, they were allied with Britain. So Italy and Britain were on the same side. So what that did was, since we were allies with Britain, although the U.S. was a non-interventionist, neutral country until 1917 and were not part of the war, Italy put out a call and said, hey, all you expatriate young men, Italian young men, you have to come back to Italy and sign up for the army. Oof. Yeah, so, I mean, if you were still a citizen of Italy, which Rudy was, and he was like, well, first of all, he didn't want to go back and fight in the war necessarily, but if you didn't, then you could be extradited as a criminal from the United States, and he was afraid of that. So it was a very complicated situation for him. And he ended up going and going to the Italian consulate and saying, okay, here I am. And so they gave him an examination. And so for the second time in his life, he was rejected for a physical problem. And in this case, it was his eyesight. Apparently his left eye was really the, the really bad eye. I mean, he had bad vision overall, but his left eye really was not good. And so they rejected him. So that kind of let him off the hook, but he didn't go back to Italy like he was supposed to. You know, so his his status was very amorphous because he was just kind of here in the United States. And in those days, they didn't have quotas and they didn't have the visa requirements yet. But that was coming within a few years. And um, although we've gotten very knowledgeable, I think, recently in particular about the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was a, a terrible thing, 
there also was quotas put on all immigrants. And oddly, I think to my mind, I guess, that the Italians were considered sort of undesirable immigrants. So a lot of immigrants from England, you know, even from Ireland, there are a lot from there. You know, people who were considered very white. Okay, let's have a bunch of them. But then people who were from countries where they thought, well, we're not sure whether you're really white or not, like Italians. That was often a question. Um, they limited that. So that could also end up affecting Rudy, especially since he was kind of what they, you might call swarthy, but fairly like dark, on the dark-skinned end of the white scale. And as we know later in his career, that actually becomes a big factor in the pushback against him. So basically, here he is in America. And, you know, so that was always hanging over his head, no matter what he was doing. And eventually, as we have said before, he was a good dancer. He'd been hanging out with all these counts and high life and seeing all the latest dances and doing a lot of dancing. And so he really picked up all the latest dances. And he was able then to get a job as what they called a taxi dancer. And they had both male and female taxi dancers, although we're more familiar, I think, from the movies and history uh, with the female taxi dancers. And yes, this is in the liminal area of sex work. Uh, some of those people were sex workers and some weren't, you know. But it, it created the opportunity of strangers meeting, touching, dancing, because this was, you know, ballroom dancing, and, and being together. And so then that opened the door to the possibility if you really were desperate or you wanted to be in that area to uh, to engage in sex work. So the idea of a taxi dancer is you're an employee of the establishment and then you get paid per dance you do with clients who pay the establishment for your time or the establishment pays you per dance. Ten cents a dance. That's what they pay me. Ten cents a dance. And then she goes, with rough men who tear my clothes. <laughs> Poor girl. I know, it's rough. A lot of songs of those that appeared. But anyway, yeah, so basically these people were like taxis, where you go, taxi, give me a ride. Get in the taxi, it takes you where you want to go. In this case, it would be people would come in and they would buy tickets. And it's 10 cents per ticket, so you buy however many you want. And then you go in and you pick who you want to dance with and you give them a ticket. And then at the end of the day, end of the evening, you have a certain number of tickets and you get paid based on how many tickets you have. Because there was no minimum wage law in those days. Right. A beautiful hostess, you know, the kind the palace features at exactly a dime a throw. And cents a dancer, that's what they pay me. Gosh, how they weigh me down. Ten cents a dance, panties and rough guys, tough guys who tear my gun. So basically, so it was nothing off the employer's nose to have however many people hanging out because if nobody wanted to dance with you, they didn't have to pay you, but you'd be there all evening. So, of course, there were uh, men and women. And, and the thing is, is being a male taxi dancer would be was much better than being a female taxi dancer, even if there was sex work involved. Women would come in and they're looking for romance. They're looking for Pain courtliness, yeah. maybe some, and some touch. And, you know, who knows, maybe they're looking for someone to sleep with too. But it's a very different kind of transaction because these men were dancing with women, not other men in this case. So 
So Rudy became very, very popular. Uh, and then once you became a, a successful enough taxi dancer, people got to know you, then they would hire you for private lessons. And you go upstairs and lessons occurred. <laughs> and in some cases, it, it was very respectable. And oh, totally. Like. So you'd have very high class, probably not sex workers. Yeah. Like very much like well, I think I'm, instructors. I think, I'm, I think I'm really hitting that hard because people talked about it a lot. And it was a really big deal at the time. And there's a lot of writing on it. Everyone was exercised over it. Blah, blah, mm. blah. Well, basically, the, the fact is, is probably most of the time, it was probably completely up on the up and up from our point of view, that there wasn't like sex for money kind of deals. Probably the very minority of the cases uh, in general, particularly on the male side. Because these ladies, a lot of times they were older ladies, married women, or even younger married women who were kind of not getting the romance, not getting the, the dancing. Looking for some fun, yeah. spicy time. And yeah. somebody who, who was be courtly and genteel and you know really give them the lovely kind of respect and that you dream of from the novels kind yeah. of thing. You know? Very similarly, that's a very popular thing in Japan is the host clubs where yeah. men kind of wine and dine you, but they work for the club. and yeah. Right, right. And of course, with the private dances, the men probably paid a, a fee, or the women, men or women paid a fee to rent the room. More than likely, they made the charges and pocketed the money, but they paid the establishment for mm. whatever, you know, whatever fees. Probably not inexpensive rental of the room and so forth. So Rudy, Rudy then end up, ended up doing this, and he started okay. actually making a lot of money. And he was doing extremely well, so he could buy very nice clothes, and you know he knew all the latest dances. And first of all, he was very good looking, but more importantly, he had real charisma. And the other thing is, is that he really liked women, as we've talked about in the last episode, with his history with his mother, his sister, how women liked him, so he liked them back, and they understood him and cared about him, unlike men who had been very rough and brutal and abusive to him. So he really liked women, and women pick up on that. So even if they're paying for him to dance with them and to hold their hand and maybe whisper in their ear a little bit, it was his sincere desire to offer comfort and pleasure and please women. And so women picked up on that, and he was just so popular. Now, I want to get back to this thing about the sex work thing and the, the big brouhaha that was going on. A lot of people have said, and I really agree with this, that a lot of that was really that uh, scoffing at these gigolos and, oh, it's terrible and this is not right and it's immoral, degrading, degrading and all. But it's also for the women, terrible, immoral, you know, women not impure. But really what part of the problem was is that these women were going to these places on their own with agency and choosing a man Right. And paying with their money. And that was a lot of it because the economic um, oppression of women was the key to keeping women repressed. I mean, when women, women couldn't vote at this time, so that's a way to, to, to take away economic power because you then can't vote for laws or lawmakers who are going to support social initiatives that are going to allow you to have equal pay, for example. So these women, they, they were probably mostly married because that's where their money came from because they couldn't earn it on their own. And so here they were taking money and having agency with money and having agency with a man and being the dominant figure in a relationship with a man, even if it is only dancing. Mm -hmm. 
And, and of course, there's all the titillation of the touching and the dancing and the, you know, that kind of stuff too. But I really think that the brouhaha and this idea that all these, all the sex work was going on and all of this stuff was going on in these rooms, as titillating as it might be, and, you know, it's fun to think about, I don't think that much was going on. So it's just really a way for the male hegemony to express their anxiety over the fact that women were having control. And, and making decisions and, and deciding what to do and feeling like they're losing their, uh, their power. I'll buy that. And I think that's the case a lot of the time in sex, sort of sex scandals or sex panics or whatever, mm-hmm. is that there's kind of a straw man that's like a very rare thing that people mm-hmm. talk about a lot. Right. Because, issue. Because, because if they really talked about what they were talking about, then they'd be talking about the real thing. Yeah. And the only way to, to, to keep it from actually changing or from moving forward or being addressed is to not talk about the thing. Talk about something else. Yeah. You know? And uh, because I think most people would have agreed in America, it would be bad for a married woman to go out with a, a slimy foreigner and sleep with him. You know, most people in America would agree with that. But maybe not everybody would agree that women shouldn't have the right to spend their money how they want to. Right. Or to make money. You know, that kind of thing. So anyway, that's what Rudy was doing. And he was very, very successful. Do it, but, but, the, and, but the problem is, is that, like I was saying, because they were trying to create a scandal and, and there was a lot of discomfort over this whole issue, uh, it was the male, the males who were denigrated and, and, and put down as a way to express this, this discomfort. And so these taxi dancers were often called tango pirates and lounge lizards. <laughs> and 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 one of the uh, one of the newspapers said, in the summer they wear the most fashionable straws and cutaway coats and spats, always spats. <laughs> and Rudy did wear a lot of spats. I love spats. Spats is short for spatterdashes, oh. and they are the little. Uh, if you look at old movies. They're like these little cloth covers that go over the t- very tops of the shoes. Very white, yeah. Yeah, white. Well, actually, dark ones too. But you can really see them when they're white. Fred Astaire wore them too in his early movies, and they button up the side, and they and then the, a little strap goes under the, under the sole of the foot by the heel to hold them on. And I just think they're awesomeness. And they really come out of the military look. If you look at old uniforms. They would have them over the tops of the boots and things mm-hmm. like that. I, th- I think they were initially to protect the shoe. And then they became fashionable, and they became white, and then they became a thing. And then, Is that where two-tone shoes kind of came from? Too? Yeah, that's a good point. I never thought of that. But yeah, maybe. I was always kind of confused about that when I was very little. And you'd be like, oh, he was wearing spats, and my eyes couldn't see the difference yeah. in the black and white movies <laughs> between the two-tone <laughs> shoes and the shoes with spats over the top. Yeah. <laughs> point okay yeah um those two-tone shoes they may well have been it's sort of like a later iteration of keeping this sort of elegant look going yeah yeah that makes sense and anyway so so that's the kind of things they were saying so they were really treated they're called gigolos obviously Uh, men kept by the money of women and you see that in the movies too there's this whole thing about no no you must live on my money no you cannot have the fortune your your family built up because i would be living on your money and that it makes me not a man and so again that's one of the places where that idea kind of started or began to really gain so much currency in the culture is that when women started having money it had to make a man emasculated to actually 
take money from women. And take money from women or have women pay for anything or even give them gifts, like fancy gifts and things like that. It's just, it's idiotic anyway. Is this is this something that comes back like when people would criticize or make fun of Rudy like later in his career? Oh, yeah. They, the gigolo point got Absolutely. hit on a lot. Absolutely. I mean, totally. We're going to hit that one a lot because even though they didn't have the internet in those days, the stories of his life in New York followed him. But it's really interesting because he, he made a lot of friends at this time and he made friends with people like George Raft and Clifton Webb. Now, George Raft became known as a gangster movie star. He's a movie star who played these, these tough guys, rough guys. He was a dancer on vaudeville. He was a taxi dancer. He did the same job. And Clifton Webb, who it's hard to believe when you see him, but if you've ever seen the movie Laura, he plays Waldo Lidecker. He was uh, kind of a, a quite a skinny, weedy kind of guy. Very gay. He was almost out. He's out as far as Hollywood was concerned, but not as far as his fandom was concerned. So so there are these two guys. It's very interesting because neither one of them caught the kind of flack. Never, never caught the flack that Rudy caught. And they did the same job, but they weren't. And everyone thought that George Raft looked like Rudy and that he could be a Rudy substitute. I think it's an insult to Rudy. I mean, George, I do see it. I do see the resemblance, but I mean, there's just, Rudy was like an angel. (laughs) George Raff was a mere man, a mere mortal. (laughs) Which is probably why Rudy ended up catching that kind of flack is just Mm because he tapped in on a archetypal, I guess we use that word a lot when we talk about things, but level that these other actors didn't. And we can talk more about that later. Yeah, it's sort of that beauty, that masculine beauty. Yeah, we'll talk about, we'll give you a lot of details and, uh, outlines of all the kind of things that happened but right now it's getting set up in his life so he's doing this job like i said he he knows uh george raft he knows clifton webb he even met dw griffith in new york city hanging out there because that's where the center of movies were at that time over in fort lee new jersey is where the edison studios were and then in astoria in various places in new york city this is where they were actually making films at the time hollywood Around this time, people started going out there to make films because, of, partly because of the weather. But mostly, I am digressing, stop me if I'm going too far off the track, but mostly they started migrating out there at the very first was because the film invention, the invention of making movies, was patented by Thomas Edison. And so he was requiring a lot of restrictions. He was requiring a lot of money. Uh, he didn't want other people to be making movies. And so essentially they... He was such a bastard. Oh, he was a bastard. He was a brilliant bastard. What ha- ended up happening is that these people who started the major studios, the Foxes, the uh, Warner Brothers, they said, we're going to go to the other side of the country. So it's going to be so much harder for him to know what we're doing out there. Oh, uh, Okay. So they did send people out there and try to stop them, but they they were getting around these uh, patents and the trademark restrictions, not trademark, but patent restrictions, uh, by going out there. And then eventually it's like, well, the weather's great here. The land is cheap. There's nobody out here. I mean, it was empty at that time, practically, except for the few native peoples who live there and a few Mexican people who live there, but it was really pretty wide open. And uh, so the migration began within... During World War One, as people began slowly migrating out there to make movies. But at this time, New York was the place. And D.W. Griffith was making his movies in New York. And Rudy met him. You know, Chad, he knew who he was. Did he, would he give him a job? No, he would not give him a job. Uh, Mae Murray, uh, this is somebody that probably none of our listen- listeners know, unless they're big into silent films. 
but she was had been a Ziegfeld Follies girl. All our girls come from Ziegfeld Follies at this point. They all kind of start in vaudeville and work their way through to the Ziegfeld Follies, become famous, and then they go on to the legitimate stage and into movies. So she was a comic. She was a dancer. She was really kind of very much looked like a woman of that time. And she was kind of known as the girl with the bee stung lips. And so the big the big thing at that time for makeup uh, was uh, to to put lip to. Can you describe it? It's, it's really basically hard. just to color your lips just in the very center so that you have this like little Cupid's bow or little heart there. shape in the middle of your lips. And I'm sure people are pretty familiar with that. Yeah, the bee stung lips. Yeah, so she was the girl with the bee stung lips. And she was really funny. And I guess she was a really good dancer, although in the one movie we saw with her and she was not very good, <laughs> we didn't think. But anyway, she... Uh, she was a real party girl. Was she also a taxi dancer? Um, you know, I don't know, actually. Okay. I don't know that much about her history, but she definitely was a party girl, big time. And she and Rudy hit it off big time and everyone wanted to talk about later on oh is he having an affair with her oh they're you know and she's she's like no wait we are like brother and we are so close that we are like brother and sister they just they totally hit it off but she was not a good influence on him because she was a party girl and she was wild and of course that just fed right into his most probably worst characteristics in terms of his stability you know so anyway that that was the milieu that he was going on and then um he got really, really lucky that Clifton Webb got um, a job to go and be in the movies. And Webb uh, was a, uh, at this point, he'd moved up from being a taxi dancer to being an exhibition dancer. And an exhibition dancer is like one step up on the food chain where you're no longer in the liminal, that liminal kind of area. Now you're just, you're really an entertainer. And a lot of people thought that working in the theater was like being in a bordello. A lot of middle class, you know, upstanding moral people thought, oh, well, th- those people are all just a bunch of prostitutes anyway. But really, people in the know, people who were artistic and educated, they all realized that, you know, once you become an exhibition dancer, you're just giving performances, just like a, a ballet dancer would or whatever. And so Bonnie Glass had been dancing with Clifton Webb, and it seemed to be the women who were mostly the kind of the star. And the man was there to frame her, to dance with her, to partner her. And so Bonnie Glass was the name of this particular famous dancer. And she'd been dancing with Clifton Webb. He left to go into the movies, into the silence. And so Rudy got the job and he ended up taking over that spot. So he, he ended up making a lot less money that he was making and went doing all this taxi dancing and these private lessons. He'd been doing really, really well. Uh-huh. Making like maybe half as much. Wow. So, but, but, but he traded it for the prestige. To move up. Yeah. yeah, the prestige and also because he wanted to get, by this time, he wanted to break into the movies because when he'd been in Italy, they didn't have the movies over there yet, really, not where he lived. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe like in Rome or in Milan, they might have had one movie theater or something. Or Well, actually, when he was young, I don't think they even had Nickelodeons over there. Because by the time Rudy got famous, the people in his town had never seen one of his movies. And so it just really wasn't, though he knew of them, he wouldn't really have understood the impact or what they were or whatever. But once he got there and he got to know these people who were in the theater and in the movies, and he wanted to be in on it. He really wanted to get in front of that camera. And that was, to me, that's the click. 
because that is what he was meant to do. You can just see he's just perfect in front of the, the camera. He's one of those people that in a crowd of people, your eye is going to go right to him and go, wow, you know, that's, there's something about his outline that is so clean and clear and crisp that you're like, your eye just goes to it, you know? And, uh, and plus being a really great performer and dancer. So he really wanted to get in there, but it was hard. Even then it was still really hard to get jobs. And there's a lot of disagreement about what his first film was. It's pretty much believed he did uh, act as an extra in various films here and there. And, uh, but a lot of those films are lost now. So we don't know. And it wasn't until Hollywood that he ha- ever had like a, a larger role. Yeah, exactly. But you know, he was trying to get in, and apparently he also wanted to get onto the stage. Exhibition dance was a, a step closer to, to either the theater or film. But uh, one of the things that was just interesting, like, he would go to the casting offices every day, every day, talking to people. He'd walk up to people, he'd ask them. He was driven, and he was persistent. And, you know, people got to know him in these places and all kinds of things like that. And at one point, he was in a automat. And an automat was one of those places where they had all these little doors and there's food behind the doors. And you put your coin in the slot and the door would open and then you could take out your piece of pie hmm. or your, your beef stew or your steaming turkey sandwich. That's funny. I never realized that's what an automat was. Yes. I only ever heard it in the Marilyn Monroe song. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. Ah, yeah. That's but what... I kind of thought it was like a laundry place because of the mat, you yeah. know? You're a kiss of the hand, maybe quite continental, but diamonds are a girl's best friend. A kiss may be grand, but won't pay the rental on your humble flat or help you at the automat mail actually if you watch the 1930s movies i know you've seen them you just probably didn't actually know what i was looking at yeah Yeah. exactly like in king kong Faye ray goes into an automat and that's one that it's either he takes her there and feeds her because she's so hungry or she goes into the auto uh, automat gets a cup of coffee and they see that she's starving and they buy her piece of pie and stuff like that because Uh they wanted to go they want to hire her to go to skull island but anyway, so that's one place where you've seen it. Anyway, he was in an automat, and he looks over and he sees Mary Pickford sitting at the table. Now, Mary Pickford was not the breakout international star she would become. She was still, but she was still a well-known actress. She was had been doing D.W. Griffith movies. She had been appearing in various things, and so she was known. And so, obviously, Rudy went to the movies, and he also went to the theater a lot. So he knew these people. So she's sitting at a table with her mom eating. And so he walks over to the table, but being the old world gentleman he was, he did not address Mary Pickford. He bowed to her mother and asked her if she could give him any advice on how to get into the pictures. Cute. <laughs> it's very cute. And she was very nice to him, apparently, and she told she gave him real advice on like what kind of pictures he should have taken and who he should send them to and so on and so forth. So, she, so he got some real good advice from her. Anyway, that's, that's a very cute story. So essentially, uh, he's working with Bonnie Glass, and they they actually tour around the country, particularly on the East Coast. And one point, they actually danced before Woodrow Wilson at the White House. Big deal in a show. Yeah. It, so you know, so this was not like real. This was not small time stuff at the time. It's just, and he was again, he was making 
way more money than a working guy would have made, just not as much as he used to be. So then what happened was Bonnie decide, got married and decided she was going to quit. And she wanted to get out of the get out of the biz. So he was out of a job. So he had to get a new gig. And lucky for him, he ended up meeting or being recommended to a woman named Joan Sawyer, who's now looking for a partner as well. She liked the dark mention. The, the partner she had before him was like a dark Italian kind of guy. Um, and so she liked that to dance with that type. So she really liked Rudy's looks and she liked his dancing. So they danced together quite a while and they toured together also on trains and hotels and so forth and that was going fine but then something very interesting happens now this is 1916 and Rudy meets this woman named Blanca de Sales I hope I'm saying that right but Blanca originally from Chile she was her family was part of the one percent and she had this trust fund of like a hundred thousand dollars which was just a drop in the bucket of their fortune but she was extremely beautiful, petite, pale skin, dark hair, dark eyed, temperamental. She had a lot of temperament and fire and intelligence. And when she was very young, this guy named Jack DeSalles, so obviously her name wasn't originally DeSalles. Jack DeSalles goes down to Chile. He's a kind of famous, I guess, in terms of he had gone to Harvard. He was a football star, considered to be that quote-unquote, all-American look that women are supposed to like. He's big, broad-shouldered, blonde, not my type, but he was considered very handsome at the time. And, and he went down there and he was trying to get business together and make money and get rich and so forth. Because even though he went to, to Ivy League school, his family wasn't like super rich. And he wanted to be super rich. And he loved the ponies and he loved gamble and he loved racing and he needed a lot of money. And he sees Blanca de Sol and then dollar signs boing 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 come out of his eyeballs when he sees her you know and he's he's in his 20s and she's probably about 17 16 or 17 and she's very beautiful she's really come out in terms of like debutante kind of stuff so she's like on the marriage market kind of young but i guess that's you know in those days that was not unusual beautifully gorgeous i don't think jack ever loved her i'm sure there was an attraction there because she was beautiful but anyway, so he courts her, and the family doesn't like him, and all that stuff. So ultimately, Blanca puts her foot down. She says, I'm going to elope if you won't let me marry this guy. And so the family comes around, and he marries her, and he sweeps her off to the United States. And they're, you know, living in the lap, lap of luxury. They've gone to Paris, and they've got clothes, and just all kinds of stuff. Well, then what happens is she gets pregnant. She has Jack Jr. He loves Jack Jr., but he's not like so keen on Blanca for quite a while there. And he just basically like goes off, does his thing, just leaves her with the baby. She doesn't know what he's doing, but he's doing stuff. And once they get to the United States, he finds out that they're kind of blowing through her money because he basically she has a trust. So all the money comes out, she has to sign for it. But so he's just basically giving her stuff and telling her to sign checks and whatever. Like, for example, he says, oh, I'm going to buy this apartment for you to live in in New York City. She says, oh, sweet. He says, it costs $12,000. So, oh, okay. So she signs the, the check. He buys the apartment. And then he says, oh, by the way, I just decided I'm going to use that for a hangout with my buddies. And you're going to go live with my mother in Pennsylvania. <laughs> what a rat. Oh, he's such a stinker. Plus, the fact is his parents... His mother, in particular, was very straight-laced, moralistic. The kind of person who would say, you're foreign, 
and you're Latin, which means you got to be morally full of moral turpitude because you're, you know, you're, you're Latin, you know, that kind of prejudice. Plus, Blanca was young and beautiful and fiery and she wanted to get out and she did like to live the good life. She wanted to party. She wanted to dance. She wanted to do all these things. And of course, that was no good. But Jack could do what he wanted. So she, and so the mother is, she's living with this mother who hates her and is oppressing her. And she just paid for this apartment. And then later we find out the apartment cost $6,000. Right. What happened to the other $6,000, do you wonder? I mean, that's the kind of stuff he was doing all the time. And having her pay for his investments and his, his, his stinky business deals that went under. And ultimately they started running out of money. And he finds out and he is livid and he is so angry with her. I wouldn't be surprised if he batted her around. Because at some point I think he did. That's my opinion. Because he found out that that's all the money she had in her trust fund. He's going, he's going you have to get more money. Because he knew his, her family was worth millions, millions and millions. And the family knew that he was a gold digger. And so they, they refused to give him more money. And so we're caught in this horrible marriage, in this horrible situation. And she is a woman. Now, she could have gone back to her family, but it was like the scandal. And also, in order to leave the country with the child, she would have to have her husband's permission. Mm. Because, I mean, you know, they're not going to let... Children belong to their fathers, even in those days still, even though women were starting to get more rights. So it would have been very hard for her to assert any sort of authority over the child. So then what happens is Blanca gets to New York City. She's living there. So she ends up, I guess, you know, deciding she wants to do a little dancing or she goes with friends. Anyway, she ends up meeting Rudy, and we don't know when they met. But believe me, Blanca de Salles is his type. She looks like both of his ex-wives both that of, come later. Yeah. Both of them, yes. <laughs> and the woman he dated after his he got divorced. I mean, all his women were like this. Uh, varying in height, but they all looked like beautiful. And she was kind of maybe even the most beautiful one. Maybe mm. she became the template for his ideal woman. But she was his ideal woman. And so she would go, and they would have private lessons, apparently. And they would sit at a table tete-a-tete. And he would like... I can just see him, like in the kind of leaning in toward her, like trying to hold her hand. And she's sitting there and he's like attentive and listening and just swooning over her. He's just, oh, he's so in love. He's just totally smitten with her, in love with her. And everybody I've read said they don't think that was ever a consummated affair, that it was more an affair of the heart. Because she was in a very tricky situation. In those days, there was no such thing as no-fault divorce. There could be divorce because somebody did something bad and whoever did was the bad actor was the one who got in trouble with the court. And so so property could be, be divided and um, uh, custody of children could be determined based on that you did something bad, like had an affair. So if she was ever caught having an affair, she knew she would lose total custody and never get to see her child again. And although she was kind of an iffy kind of mother and really was much more narcissistic and self-concerned, she did love her child too, you know. And also money in terms of their assets and so forth, what would happen with that. She was a very intelligent woman and she was not stupid enough to actually have sex. But, you know, they had some lovely sort of humid afternoons together, shall we sure. say. And Rudy was just lingering oh, gazes. <laughs> so in love with her. And what's interesting is is then she finally, finally got to the point where she 
had a detective going and she finally figured out that her husband was having an affair and so she could get a divorce and she could accuse him of having an affair and therefore their marriage was broken and that would that would work for her so what happens is now this is a very interesting tidbit here yeah well, a little tidbit so it just turns out by, ha- by sure happenstance i'm sure that uh rudy's dance partner is the one that blanca de Sal's husband is having the affair with exactly she's his mistress joan sawyer so Rudy, because he travels with Joan and he hangs out with her a lot because she is his, his business partner, he's aware of this. And he's seen some things that would confirm that indeed they're having an affair. That would be evidence. No, it would be evidence. It's, stu- it's stuff like, oh, at night I've, I saw them in her bedroom together. I saw them walk into her bedroom together. Oh, when we got up in the morning on the train, they came out of the bedroom together. You know, or that kind of thing. You know, just she said she was going to meet him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then one point, well, I'll, I'll tell you this little detail when we get to the trial. Anyway, so he, as Sir Galahad, offers to testify for her about this situation to get her out of this horrible marriage, to save her. So she takes him up on that. And with the evidence from the private detective and then with Rudy and Part of the evidence, it's so funny, he had so many court cases, and there's always some, like, one weird little thing in every case. It was just so weird. And in this case, it was, he was questioned about that he saw her douchebag in the bedroom on the bed. And they said, well, how how are you going through her things and seeing this? Oh, I didn't see it. She just opened up her bag, and there it was, and I saw it. Well, the thing is, is in those days... Since there was no pill, there were, you know, diaphragms were illegal. Uh, actually, condoms were illegal, too. Contraception was illegal in this country. So crazy. So one of the two ways, the main ways, unless you could get a hold of condoms, uh, and maybe, I don't know if diaphragms had been invented. I don't know enough about it. but Or there were diaphragms to be had and you could get one, which is very rare. The two ways was coitus interruptus and douching. So the woman would get up and she would douche like with vinegar or whatever to wash the semen out of her vagina, hoping that that would help. So the douche bag was a indication that she'd had sex with Jack DeSalle, who was in her room at the time, that she'd had sex with him and that that purpose of that was to prevent uh, conception. Interesting. Okay. So that was the point in the court case. That So that's what he testified to. Amazing. And so... I think the thing that I want to like highlight here is what a big deal and a decision it would have been for him to decide to do this. Well, Not only was he so in love with Blanca de Sals that he was being a good guy or being her protector and champion, but it was a big professional decision to do this. I mean, is Joan Sawyer going to continue to employ him? after he's going No, of course not. And is anybody else? And yeah, in any social strata and industry where there's probably affairs happening all the time there's just private business and stuff and it's up to you to be discreet as the service worker your reputation is going to tank if you testify against someone in court now you could go on stage and you could do movies if you can get into it because that's not a personal thing but yeah so he's so his reputation is ruined yeah and he probably didn't even think about it probably didn't even think about it he was so in love and so 
So then what happens is, is she gets the divorce, she gets pretty much what she wants, and does she ever talk to him again? No. He writes to her. He tries to talk to her because he figured they were going to be together now. She's gone. Never spoke to him again. So, yeah. So cold. And he loved cold women. He really did. Yeah, I tell you. <laughs> well, I tell you. Well, it, it's his, his way he chose things and what he did, you know. I, I, I feel sorry for him, but he sure did. So this was the big shocker to me when you told me this story, saving the detail that it was Joan Sawyer, his dance partner, who was the one having an affair with Blanca de Sal's husband for last, because I didn't realize that from the very beginning, this beautiful woman that Rudy became so enamored with and went through all this for had probably calculated this move from the... She looked him up and, and put herself in his path. Yeah, well, she and she had detectives following her husband. So apparently she would have known all the players. Right. So she would have known about Rudy. And she would have known that, you know, he was a single man and that he, his job was to dance with women. So that was her way in. Now that is movie-worthy right there. I tell you. And they did make a movie. Well, they, they did make a movie about her and Jack later, but it wasn't about this... It was about the fact that after she got her divorce, it was still hard. She couldn't quite leave the country, but she had a a fancy place. And then Jack had built on her money, using her money before the divorce, this beautiful house. And he built a little like amusement park, like with a Ferris wheel and a carousel. And he had a little stable with ponies in it. So whenever Jack Jr. would go over, I mean, it was like being in a wonderland, this, this kid, you know, right? And he had visit, certain visitation rights. But what started to happen was, at one point, uh, Jack Jr. was supposed to go for a visit, and Blanca gets this call from, or she gets a, uh, no, actually, I'm sorry, her chauffeur. Let me get this right. No, okay, starting over. So what happens during these visitations is, Jack is such a shit that, when Jack Jr. is supposed to come over, he would send his chauffeur over to pick him up. Well, the chauffeur was married to Blanca's maid. So she one day gets a messenger, the maid comes to her and says, look, my husband called me and he told me that Jack told him to pick up Jack Jr., take him to the airfield where he has a plane fueled and ready to go and he's going to fly him out of the country. Kidnap him, essentially. Yeah, kidnap him. Literally. (laughs) Literally, yeah. And so Blanca said, well, there's no way. And she wouldn't let Jack Jr. go over. And and this happened a couple couple of times, and she wouldn't let him go. And she, So, but I guess, I mean, there was a court order, so he he would still go over to visit his dad and see all, you know, see all these ponies and dogs and all this great stuff. And his grandparents, and that kind of worked on her, too, because the grandfather wanted to see him. So after he'd been like trying to kidnap the kid, he got her to say, okay, let, let him come over. Uh, oh, let him stay until eight instead of six because my father's here and, you know, his heart and, you know, he really wants to see him. And she's like, okay. But it, it just was enraging her. And she was a very, very fire, fiery personality, very fiery. And she was getting really, really angry with him. And so it gets to be eight o'clock and Jack Jr. is not back. So she calls up. And they're all like, oh, well, we put him into bed and just let him stay the night. So they're, they're like really pushing her and being jerks about it, you know, obviously really on purpose trying to yank her chain. And she's like, no, you, he's supposed to be back here at eight o'clock. This is not acceptable. She went into a rage and they're like, oh, you know, you're just, let's let him sleep. And so the fact was, is he actually wasn't in bed. He was just playing. 
sure. <laughs> yeah. So she and her gets her maid, and they call a taxi, and they take a taxi over to the house to get Jack Jr. And she walks up to the house, and she sees that Jack Jr. is not even in bed. And she just walks right in, rigid white, pulls out a gun and shoots Jack dissolves in the heart and kills him. Yeah. <laughs> right in front of everybody. There was no denying the situation and what happened. And then she just, she threw the gun in the bushes, but then she sat just sat down and they go, oh, oh, everybody's like freaking out. And this was in 1917. They call the police and the officers get there and she says, yes, I did it and I, I deserved, and he deserved it and I'd do it again. And all this kind of, she just, she was just like, totally like cooperative, got in the car. Then they took her to the police station. And so then she ended up having a murder trial as one would expect it would happen. And she ended up pleading temporary insanity. And it was very interesting because I do have to go back and say that the first person to get off on the plea of temporary insanity in this country was a guy named General Sickles. And if you ever want to read about somebody who's like just a pistol. This is Daniel Sickles. He was a Civil War general on the um, Union side. And please stop me again if I end up going too far in a digression. But anyway, he was a Civil War general at Gettysburg, in fact. At Gettysburg, a ball hit him in the leg and shattered his leg, his lower leg, and it had to be amputated. Isn't that the leg they put in the Smithsonian? Yes, that is. And so he sent it to the Smithsonian, and they don't have the they don't have the they have the bones on display, and so he would go every year to the Smithsonian to visit his leg on the anniversary (laughs) of Gettysburg. And in fact, which is one of the great things I love about the movie Lincoln by Steven Spielberg, there is a scene with Daniel Day Lewis playing Lincoln where you see this glass case with these leg bones in it. That's Daniel Sickles' leg. It's such an awesome little cherry bomb for me. I love it. Anyway, so Sickles, what happened was his beautiful, beautiful young wife, who's quite a bit younger than him, and whom he had been like an ignoring... Inattentive ter- husband. Very inattentive. Even though he was plenty attentive to a lot of other women and to all his friends. But anyway, she started having an affair with a guy named Philip Barton Key II who was the son of Francis Scott Key, the, as we all know, the Star-Spangled Banner guy. Yeah. So anyway, he's he was, cute. He's much cuter than her husband. Oh my God, he's, he was handsome. He was tall and handsome and young, gorgeous man. And he was kind of, he was one of those Galahad types, you know, very gallant and, you know, they, they, they were having a lovely little affair, but they were both so innocent of the ways of the world and so forth. And there'd be things like he would be walking along the mall and she would see him out the window and she'd, flutter her handkerchief at him like everybody in the neighborhood could see you know because people didn't have tv and radio and podcasts and stuff back then they were all like looking at windows and watching people (laughs) all the time so it became common knowledge that she was having an affair which i think is probably the thing that really set sickles off was that everybody knew his wife was having an affair it wasn't about her the humiliation yeah it was about him and of course no one has this like down with total evidence but come on this is what happened he, in the middle of the day, in the middle of, you know, the street. Sickles does. Sickles. He goes, gets his gun, and he strides up to Barton Key, who's standing there, and shoots him dead. 
broad daylight. Everybody can see it. Doesn't deny it. Gets into court, pleads temporary insanity because, of course, he said basically just found out that his wife was having this affair and so on and so forth. And what's interesting is he shot him dead in Lafayette Square, which was right across from the White House. Wow. Yeah. So it happened right there. And he just said you know, he lost his mind. And he just shot him, you know. And they, all the men, because it's only men on the jury, like, yeah, dude. Sure, yeah. Well, they were like, yeah, you must have been crazy not to try and do anything sneaky, just to do it in plain sight. Right, right. You gotta be crazy. Right, exactly. You know, yeah. exactly. It's just like out there. So so he got off. So this is the same, so this is the same plea that Blanca de Saul uses. And she, beautiful, nobody likes to hang a woman or put a woman in the electric chair. It's true. You know, they let her off. She gets off. Dan, dan, And that's perfect timing to wrap up this segment. So right before the divorce trial, obviously they knew who was going to be testifying and so forth. Rudy gets arrested because he had been supposedly hanging out at a brothel. Well, it was an apartment. Maybe there was prostitution going on there. Nobody really knows. Nothing is certain. But he's hanging out in this apartment and he ended up being arrested because he was detained. They said he was detained as a material witness. And the police were tipped off by a well-to-do businessman who said he had been victimized. So I think that must have been after the divorce trial. So it was Jack, come on, Jack DeSalle's, um, tipped them off and said, you got to arrest this guy. Because he had all kinds of connections. He was friends with the police commissioner and the mayor and everything. And so he got Rudy arrested. And the newspaper said that he'd been arrested for running a brothel. And, in fact, he'd been arrested... He wasn't even arrested. He was detained as a material witness on for what? Nothing. So he was held for two days, a couple, or two or three days in the tombs, which is a horrible place, horrible, horrible place. And he and they they finally had to let him go. And he wasn't charged with anything. But the fact was is that the newspapers were leaked information by guess who that he was a pro, that he was a, a a pimp and was running a brothel. And and then all this details came out. And again, this is important because this follows him into Hollywood and the rest of his career. The newspaper said that he, um, that he wore a bracelet watch, which is what is called a wristwatch, which was considered very louche and very like feminine fem- and questionable, you know, questionable that you would wear a bracelet watch. And they said, he's a dancer who wears corsets. Which is very common for men. Men often wore corsets when they, especially dancers, to keep their posture. And so, I mean, there was nothing that weird about it. Uh, so basically, he ended up getting out. And at that point, he decided he needed to leave New York. And then this whole trial that I was talking about, the murder trial, the murder and the murder trial happened. And of course, the newspapers then picked it up again about him being arrested for being a, a pimp, that he had testified at the divorce trial and that she and they started creating a rumor that she had killed Jack for love of him mm. which was then wildly untrue wildly untrue and which really tarred him so basically the newspapers I think under the influence of Jack DeSalle's ended up really really blackening his name and so forth which was really terrible so he had to get out of New York he couldn't earn a living there anymore really and he had to leave so he ended up um, getting into the touring company of a show called The Mask, Masked Model. He was in the chorus. He ended up getting fired, but apparently he used the, the ticket that he had for, for the show 
because the show was going to California to just go to California. And he ended up arriving in L.A. in 1917, the year that the United States joined World War One. And uh, that's how we get him to Hollywood. So we'll pick up next time with Rudy's rise to fame and we'll in start, the movies. And we'll start talking about the movies. And um, I did kind of gloss over the fact is he was in a couple of movies when he was still in New York, which I'll go over little minor things, but we'll talk about that and kind of catch you up on his, what he'd been doing in movies in New York and then uh, how that segues into uh, his work in Hollywood. Thanks, everybody. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.